as I've been seeking God as to what we can do as a series next, having finished John, I felt God leading me to do a series on the rich treasures of the Old Testament. And so I've titled this first message, Why Study the Old Testament? Because my goal is to convince you of the value of exploring the Old Testament and to begin the journey. And we only got two points today. The first is why, and then I've got four motivations under that. And the second is what, and I have four key concepts behind that. So first of all, the why, which is much shorter than the what, let's look at what these four are. Uh, The first one is that God has chosen to reveal himself in two volumes. That's how he's chosen to do it. And so it's not up to us to say that only the second one is worth much attention. If he's given us his revelation that way, then we have a responsibility to listen in the way he has spoken and not choose. We just want to listen to part of what he said. The second is that it's the foundation on which the new is built. And there are some things in the New Testament that are clearer if we know the old. Some are much richer with added nuance if we know the backstory in the Old Testament. And I'm going to give you an example of one of those in just a moment. And also, it's not just a bunch of stories, but actually it has a flow. It's telling a big story. My third reason is we encounter Jesus, the Father and the Spirit in the stories in a way that enriches our relationship with them. And then the fourth one is that it's been said that most errors creep into the church from misinterpreting or misrepresenting the Old Testament. For example, the prosperity gospel is based really on taking verses out of context intended for ancient Israel. And so if we're going to try and get this in a, in a picture, I'm going to suggest the Old Testament is like the root system of a tree, and the New Testament is like the fruit-bearing branches above the ground. And, of course, what you want is what's above the ground. We want the fruits. We see the beauty. But you you need the roots in order to get the richness from the fruit. So that's my icon of what we are doing, my emblem for what we're doing. And when I first came to Canada in 1985, I decided in England that I was going to take a year studying the Bible, a year off from my career studying the Bible. And... I'd been brought up, my dad was a pastor, we had very solid sermons every week, I loved reading Christian books, I was, I was, uh, I thought I was, you know, pretty, pretty well taught in theology, I thought I was pretty solid in my theology, and so I thought, you know, maybe I'll have a little bit to learn, you know, an icing on the cake, I'll have a few more things to learn, you know, I'm, I'm 90% of the way there, well, I mean, it was a very arrogant thing to think, but, but um, when I came, I was absolutely bowled over by how much I didn't know, 
how much there was to learn. And in particular, one of the things that struck me, I would say more than anything else, was the Old Testament theology course, where we learnt about the Old Testament. Now, I'd been in kids' Sunday school since, you know, since I was, I was a toddler, and I'd had all the stories. I knew all the stories. I knew all the Bible stories, at least I thought. But I got no idea about this stuff I was learning about, how it fitted together. It was so exciting for me. It was probably the biggest thing that I got from my year. Well, it was only a part of the, 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 it was only one course, but it was probably the biggest thing. And as I spoke to other students, that was common that they would say, it was Old Testament. Wow, that just so enriched me. And so uh, that was that was my experience. And I'm just going to ask Anne to come up now and share her thoughts on this. Yes, I was uh, I took the same class that Andrew did in Old Testament theology. And it was. It was life-changing. It was, it was a stunning course. And I have an illustration of the way what we learn from it goes. Now, we, all, we tend to view the Bible as this wonderful little treasure box. And we open the treasure box, and inside there are treasures. Oh, these are the Bible stories. This is a small pink one. Oh, a purple one. We get very excited about these stories and some of them are big and important. And some of them we get really, really excited about. We have our whole, I don't know if you can hear that, our whole box full of treasures. But if we pull all this, just pull things out individually like that, we have no idea of whether they connect to anything else. It's just literally a box of separate, exciting little treasures. But in fact, the way God made the Bible, he put it together carefully in order. And actually, all these beautiful treasures make a lovely necklace. Which is beautiful connected, useful. It's a whole thing from beginning to end. And this is actually how we view all those Bible stories. And I don't know if you can see this, I've connected them with a slightly twinkly golden thread because actually the twinkly golden thread that connects all these stories together is actually Jesus. And that was the most amazing thing to learn, that the Bible was put together intentionally in order and these stories form a beautiful whole that's much more exciting than just the odd treasure we pull out of the box. So I'd like to uh, to give an example of just one story which we get more richness from, more richness in the New Testament, if we know the Old Testament background. And that's a story of uh, um, of Jesus being betrayed. 
So in John 13, we read, I'm, this is at the Last Supper. Jesus says, I'm not referring to all of you. I know those I've chosen, but this is to fulfill this passage of scripture. He who shared my bread has turned against me. That is a quote from Psalm 41. <clears throat> All who hate me whisper together about me. They imagine the worst for me. Even my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted his heel against me. So what's going on there? What's the story behind this? And reading this will give us a really big insight into what it was like for Jesus when Judas betrayed him. Well, here's the story, Samuel, uh, 2 Samuel 15, starting from verse 12. Absalom, now Absalom was David's son, and Absalom rebelled against David, actually got together an army against him and tried to kill his own father. Um, and the real shock was at this point, Absalom sent for Ahithophel, the Gilanite, David's counselor from his city, Gilo. And the conspiracy grew strong and the people with Absalom kept increasing. So he's managed to persuade David's counselor to go over onto his side. But David went up the ascent of Mount of Olives, weeping as he went, barefoot with his head covered. All the people who were with him covered their heads and they went up, weeping as they went. And he was told at David, Ahithophel is among the conspirators with Absalom. And we're going to see in a minute how, what, how this impacted David emotionally. But what's interesting, a couple of chapters later, we realize when Ahithophel's plot failed, Ahithophel set his house in order and hanged himself. And he died and was buried in the tomb of his father. Exactly what happened with Judas. So we see quite a parallel here. But the point of reading this story is to ask, <clears throat> if Jesus quoted this from this story, he's making a parallel between what happened to David <clears throat> and what's happening to him. And so Psalm 55 tells us what it felt like for David for this to happen. <clears throat> for it is not an enemy who taunts me. Then I could bear it. It is not an adversary who deals insolent with insolently with me. Then I could hide from him. But it is you, a man, my equal, my companion, my familiar friend. We used to take sweet counsel together. Within God's house, we walked in the throng. His speech was smooth as butter, yet war was in his heart. His words were softer than oil, yet they were drawn swords. And here David pours out his heart what it was like to have somebody who he trusted and was, was with him so closely to turn against him. Now, of course, Jesus knew that Judas was going to at some point betray him, but nevertheless, he must have formed an attachment to him for it hurt like this. And this was very encouraging to me one time when I was felt, felt I was really betrayed. And I thought, you know, Jesus knows what it's like. Jesus knows when somebody just who you've been close to just turns against you and like puts a knife between your ribs. And so uh, reading this story, reading the incident that happened in the Old Testament, in the root, brings us some richness in the fruit 
in the tree. So that's uh, one of the benefits then we have. And I just want to mention one other benefit before I go on. Um, when we see how the Old Testament, which was written over such a large period of time, fits with the New Testament written much later, and there's not a contradiction, there's just this beautiful unity, it really attests to the fact that there's one author, that it's God who's written it. And that can increase our confidence that the Bible is true, that it's God's word, and that it's trustworthy. So, uh, let's come back then to our, our overview, studying the Old Testament for motivations, which I've given you quite quickly, and then four key concepts, which we're going to look at now. And the, the first key concept I want to look at is that God's Revelation in the Old Testament, in fact, the whole Bible, is progressive. What we mean by that is that it's organized and structured. It's not flat, but it progresses in the amount that's being revealed. And um, so, for example, how a relationship with God works. We see different stories and we see a progress in understanding what it's like to have a revelation with God. Um, a gradual revelation of grace, and, and although it was always there, it can become a lot clearer in the new. It's like studying, say you want to study a bird, rather than just studying the fully grown bird at one point, you study the whole life cycle from an egg through to, to laying eggs, the whole thing, and that gives you a richer understanding by seeing the progress. Um, so an example might be, um, marriage, the biblical teaching on marriage, there's a development. So right at the beginning, we see the purpose of marriage, dealing with the problem of aloneness and it being about mutual help and uh, support for one another. And then we see development, the idea of uh, protecting against unfaithfulness comes in with the law and uh, protecting against certain kinds of abuse. But then when we get to the new, we get a revelation that it should be monogamous and there should be one husband and one wife. And we see a, a, a deeper revelation then of the purpose towards the end of the New Testament that actually it's reflecting Christ's love to one another. And so we see this progress, which helps us to understand more of what marriage is about, because it, instead of seeing a two-dimensional portrayal, we're seeing it in three dimensions with the, the, the time element in there as well as it's developed. So, so, uh, that would be the first, my first point that it's progressive. Revelation in the Bible, particularly in the Old Testament, is progressive. But this progress is not smooth progress. It's actually in chunks of time we call epochs. And these epochs, some of them are very short periods of time and some are very long, but they're like places where there's a, a new set of things we learn about God or the people learn about God and then we see that being played out and then there's a new another epoch that comes <clears throat> and we're going to spend a lot more time looking at this but just very quickly the epochs we see um, the original goodness at creation that everything was good and then we see the fall an epoch from the fall to the time of the flood and then we have from Noah to Abraham 
then we have a time with with Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and 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 Rachel and Rebecca and all the children, and going through to uh, right the way through to the Exodus from Egypt, and that's of course that's a much longer period of time. Um, and then we have actually no, probably the Noah to Abraham is a longer period of time. But anyway, we won't get into that right now. But uh, that's a substantial period of time, Abraham through to Exodus, and then we have the giving of the law in the wilderness, and the law comes through Moses, and this takes us to a radically new place in the, the relationship between God and man, and that takes us right the way through, and. You could, in some senses, that takes it through to Jesus, but also we have an era of the prophets that comes in then where there's a much richer amount of, of revelation that's coming about what's going to be coming in the future. So some people would call that another era. And then we have the Messiah comes, which brings us into the era that we are in now, which is the the period of you can call it grace, you can call it, uh, I prefer to call it the New Covenant, which we'll come on to in just a minute. So that is an overview of some of the epochs. And there are slightly different ways you can divide that, but everybody agrees that you get these chunks where there's a change in the way things happen. And uh, the next thing I want to talk about then is the, um, it, as well as uh, being pro- progressive, and as well as it not being smooth, we are having things called covenants. It's covenantal. Now, it turns out that the main bones that form the structure of the body of the Old Testament are a series of what we call covenants between God and different people groups or individuals. And these covenants are relational bonds that God makes with people. So, for example, he made, well, I'm sorry, I'm going to give you a whole load of examples right now, but these, these, um, these covenants turn out to be really, really key and they kind of match the epochs in, as you'll see in, in quite a way. But when we look at these covenants, things begin to come together in how the Old Testament fits together. And for me, when I, when I discovered that in 1985, this began to really uh, open my eyes to what was happening. And so the, the covenants, one with Adam and Eve, although it's a little bit of disagreement about exactly what that was, but it was some kind of an agreement. Then you have one with humanity after Noah's flood, and then one with Abraham and his descendants, and then one with the nation of Israel after the Exodus, that's at Mount Sinai, with Moses, and that's a really major, major covenant. Then you get one with David, which is very, very interesting. And then we have the new covenant, which we are part of. So why is it important, if we're just in the new, why is that important to know about these other covenants and to see how these fit together? Well, it turns out that there's a huge amount of value in seeing how these things fit together. And uh, one example of how the New Testament assumes a knowledge of the old, it assumes you know, assumes you know what the roots are, is in Hebrews chapter 8. And when it says first covenant, it's talking here about the, the covenant in the wilderness through Moses at Mount Sinai. 
the covenant that we find in, in Leviticus and Deuteronomy and so on. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. For he finds fault with them when he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Now that's a prophecy. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. For they did not continue in my covenant. And so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. This is radically different. They shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest, for I will be merciful toward their iniquities and I will remember their sins no more. In speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete and what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. And of course, uh, at this time, the, the last vestiges of the temple worship were vanishing away as the temple was destroyed. So this is a, a, an example of where there's a concept in the Old Testament which is being built upon in the New. And to see how the New and the Old relate together is so rich and so encouraging for us. So what, where we're up to then in this is we've looked at the key concepts. It's progressive. It's not smooth progress, but it's in epochs. It's covenantal, you know, it's, it's framed in terms of these covenants, which are like the bones that, that make up the story, the most important key parts of the story. And then I want to talk about there's an organic connection, an organic relationship between everything. What do I mean by that? Well, there are some people look at the Old Testament and they say, well, you know, those are just things that happen, but they're like watertight compartments. They don't affect us at all. But what I want to say is actually, although in some ways there were big differences with the way God was relating, yet there were some key similarities. And there's a movement from promises in the old to being fulfilled in the new. And also of pictures in the old which turn to reality in the new. Now, of course, you, you will know about the, the animal sacrifices, the lamb that was sacrificed for their sins and how that was a picture of Jesus dying for our sins. Many, many other pictures that were visual pictures in the old which turned into our experience in the new. And so this progress from the old to the new is often alluded to in the New Testament, but if you don't know what it's talking about, you won't get it. And so I'm going to just take one example of this, um, that um, this movement from a, like a picture 
to a reality. And which an example which I find really quite helpful, and that is a place in Israel's history when they were in the wilderness and they'd behave very, very badly. They'd really behave badly. And a plague of of snakes, we're told fiery snakes, had come upon them. And they're being bitten by these snakes. And they were dying because of these snakes. And so we're going to take up the story in Numbers 21. And the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people. And the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole, and everyone who is bitten when he sees it shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent, set it on a pole, and if a serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. So this is very interesting that there's this, this uh, serpent here, which is on a pole, is lifted up, and people only have to look at it, and they're, the bite goes away, the poison goes away, and they're fine. Well, you probably know about the reference to this in the New Testament in John 3. Jesus says, As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, speaking of himself that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. And then this is leading up to one of the most famous verses in the Bible. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. So, you probably all know verse 16. It's the best known verse in the Bible, but it's not usually quoted in in the context of verse 14. And even if it was, a lot of people wouldn't know what it's talking about. But actually, it is so helpful. Why is that? Well, the real question in verse 16 is, what does it mean to believe in him? Does it know what does it mean to believe he exists? What does it actually know? What does it mean? How do I believe in him? And so if you look at the context, there is an example. The example is, that all these people had to do was to look at this bronze snake on a pole and they would be healed. That's all they had to do. Now, if they were like angry with God and they were stubborn, they say, oh, I'm not going to look. Who, what, how can that help looking at that? Um, some of them might actually have to make a little bit of a, you know, it was a, a lot, a lot of people in the wilderness. Some of them might not be close enough to see it. They have to get somebody to carry them closer they, so they could see it. But there would maybe be a little bit of effort sometimes, but not a lot of effort. Not a great work they had to do. Really, all they had to do was to believe that that could help them, to trust that that could help them and to look. So what this is really, really helpful in doing is explain to us what it means to have faith. That is actually very simple. All you have to do is to look to Jesus as the one who can make you whole, make you healed, forgive your sins. That's all you have to do. And if you're looking to him 
and just say, I want to I wanna just focus on you, um, then that is what faith is. So this is so helpful because well, faith is so easy. It's not some great thing. It's not some great thing. There's a, um, there's a, a story of one of the greatest preachers in, that, the, that the United Kingdom has ever seen, a man called C.H. Spurgeon. And um, he, as a teenager, he um, was very unsure about, you know, he wanted to become a Christian. He didn't really know what it was about. And he spent a lot of time like worrying about you know, how he could become a Christian. And one day he was out of London. He lived in London. He was out of London at a farming village and he went to church and there was a, there was a farmer there who was preaching. And the farmer wasn't a very good sermon. In fact, Spurgeon said it was one of the worst sermons he'd ever heard. But the man was preaching from this and the man said to him, the, the, it was a little, a little chapel and he pointed at Spurgeon. He said, you young man at the back, you're looking very unhappy. Look to Jesus. And Spurgeon says, and I looked. And I was saved. So I want to leave this with you, that this is what it means to trust Jesus, simply to look. And we get this understanding by looking at the Old Testament, the richnesses that is there in the Old Testament, and hope that in the weeks to come, there'll be much more that we can learn and enrich our relationship with God, our understanding of his word, and our Christian lives. So, let me recap as we come to the end. Why study the Old Testament? Four motivations. First of all, God has chosen to reveal himself in two volumes. It's not up to us to say only the second is worth our attention. Then, it's the foundation on which the new is built. It's the roots in which the tree of the new grows in. And three, we encounter Jesus, the Father, and the Spirit in the stories in a way that enriches our relationship with them. And we saw that in the the serpent raised up in the wilderness. And then four, it's been said that most errors creep into the church from misinterpreting the old. So it's, it's really important that we do know the old. And then we looked at four key concepts. First of all, it's progressive. It's not just flat, but it grows in revelation as we go through. And then second, this growth is not smooth, but it's in these chunks of time, these epochs. If we look at these epochs, we see that there are these things called covenants, which actually move forward the story in big ways. They're like the bones of the body. Very, they are the, 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 the big structure of the Old Testament. And then we saw at the end it's organically connected. And one of the ways is with pictures, which we call types. They're pictures of things that relate to Jesus, types of Christ. We can use that expression. When Jesus, after he was raised from the dead, encountered two of his disciples on the road, they didn't recognize him. And we read, then beginning with Moses, And all the prophets, he, that's Jesus, interpreted to them the things written about himself in all the scriptures. In other words, Jesus was doing this biblical theology, this Old Testament study with the disciples. What was the result? Afterwards, they said to each other, didn't our hearts burn within us 
while he was speaking with us on the road, while he was explaining the scriptures to us. So my goal for this series is that our hearts will burn within us as we see Jesus in the Old Testament. As Anne mentioned earlier with that illustration with the golden thread, we can say, we can say that Jesus is the golden thread which links everything together. To study the Old Testament is ultimately to, to learn about Jesus. So let's pray, shall we? Father, we thank you that you've spoken to us. We thank you, God, that you have revealed to us how we can be saved without having to, to do all sorts of works, all sorts of rules and regulations, but simply by trusting in your Son and what he's done. Thank you, God, for that. Thank you that you've given us your word and help us, we pray, to understand it better. In Jesus' name, amen.